How the lockdown has affected me as a worker for the city of Cape Town, it was a bit difficult seeing that we are used to working with clients directly. So we had to deal with them on an online basis, which was all new to, to everyone. So we had a bit of challenges, especially when it comes to um, the Wi-Fi and some people didn't have fiber, some people didn't even have a laptop and they had to come and fetch the tools from work, which is a bit challenging. Things that were easy to do has now become a challenge. It is challenging in setting boundaries, new boundaries, in setting protocols in place, in doing things the way uh, the workers, the officers now scheduled you to do things. And it is just more challenging in adhering to those protocols. Honestly speaking, it has had a huge impact on our livelihoods because most people, like I would say myself, who has family in, tourist, in the tourism business, um, how, how can I put it, that has got a major effect on them because their salaries, first of all, has been cut. And they had a life prior to that. And in terms of saying that they had a life, they were depending on their salaries. I work in human resources, so with COVID-19 taking the world by surprise, we've all had to adjust to home-based work. So a lot of things have had to change in how we assist staff, um, you know, with HR-related matters. Now they're having to uh, send documentation for various things online, um, scanning and um, scanning and emailing the documents rather than physically uh, dropping off documentation to the office. As, as a family, we're very close and with COVID-19, the lockdown, you know, we hardly saw each other. And and my kids, you know, they they grew apart from their family, uh, from their friends. Uh, my kid couldn't go to school, you know, and, uh, you know, she's uh, educational-wise, it affected her. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that solving big social issues by thinking outside the box is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your guest host, Kanisa Oyoe. I am a Bertha Scholar and I'm currently reading towards an MPhil in Inclusive Innovation at the GSB at UCT. In simple terms, I'm interested in institutional change in government through empowered change agents and collectives. My work experience in the past decade has been in the public sector, and I believe that transformed government institutions can play a key role in pushing the progress of humanity forward on the African continent. This is challenging work and it's what gets me up in the morning. Systemic shocks come in all shapes and sizes. It could be global pressures such as pandemics or climate change. It could be a government or regime change, or it could even be an organizational strategy change. Basically, a shock to any system that disturbs the system enough to drive it out of equilibrium. 
Systems practitioners usually require their systems to be able to withstand or recover from foreseeable system shocks. Therefore, many systems are designed with mechanisms in place to restore a state of equilibrium. However, some systemic shocks just hit you when in ways you least expect it. Enter the year of 2020, aka the year of COVID-19, the year of a health crisis, fear, job losses, financial crises, isolation, to name but a few. A dramatic event such as COVID-19 has far-reaching repercussions on an individual level, but also on a much broader scale. When the COVID-19 lockdown was enforced, many headlines mirrored what most people thought. A case of bad flu, I'm sure this will pass soon. However, three weeks became a month, which became two months, and soon people were starting to not only feel tired, isolated, frustrated, and often just downright angry, but also to fear for their lives. However, it did not end there. When a stone is flicked into a body of water, the ripples keep coming and there's not much you can do about it. From affecting individual lives on a personal level, the systemic shock waves of COVID-19 were quickly felt by the public sector as well. When the public sector needs to evolve without warning, as in the case of the current pandemic where government resources have been stretched, it does pose some opportunities off the back of the myriad of pressing challenges. Perhaps this is an example of that idea that futures are created and not determined. This crisis is an opportunity to recalibrate many industries and the public sector is not exempt. For the public sector, it is an opportunity to move forward by creating an integrated, digitized public service, as well as an opportunity for the government to move towards having more cohesive, equitable, sustainable and responsive systems in general. One that makes government services available to all and reduces costs and delivery turnaround times, thereby improving the lives of all South Africans. From a social justice and philanthropic perspective, we would also do well to talk about how we accelerate digital literacy and provide access to electricity and data to all our citizens amongst other things. It is futile to talk of smart cities without the real consideration that a city is only smarter because of its people. Civil society organizations, NGOs, and philanthropic organizations have had their own challenges to deal with, especially with funders dropping projects and redirecting funds at the last minute. This also needs consideration. It is a time to be reflective in the way we frame the pandemic as having presented the world with a window of opportunity to build better, to do business unusual, and to build green. Essentially, an opportunity for systems to evolve and innovate. Joining us to further unpack this topic today is Dr. Solange Rosa, head of the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and Lorenzo Davids, who is the CEO at the Community Chest in the Western Cape. Welcome, everyone. I look forward to our conversation today. Let's dive right in. What stood out for you the most about the voice notes and what the reflections of the participants were? Maybe, Lorenzo, we can start with you. Well, thank you, Kanisa. I, I suppose the, the thing that, that we hear in these kinds of messages is the sense of that the, the pandemic, the crisis around COVID-19 impacted people both personally and corporately. It impacted families, it impacted communities, it impacted systems as people work how they experienced the reality they were in. And so there's this, this multi-layered 
uh, impact that that occurred. Um, the, the sort of notion I have with with this is that I, I, I suppose my, my own my own reflection on 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 that story on the narratives that we heard is that that essentially is 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 not is not something that I am surprised by. Not, I don't consider it to be profoundly new. I think this is this is bringing to fore into the foreground sufferings that have been hidden for decades. It's, it's sort of foregrounding things that people have lived with uh, for decades in this country and in other society as well, which is, which is this notion that there is a residual sense of suffering that exists within communities, which, which the, the sort of normal narratives don't foreground, don't tell, don't show, because we have this veneer, the sense of that things are okay, our systems work, our societies function, people have food to eat, they have transport to go to, they have a bus to catch, they can jump on a plane and fly anywhere, and they can come home and feed their families. Whereas that, that narrative is but a, a smidgen of the, the, the true narratives that exist within our society. The bulk of the narratives are exactly the kind of WhatsApp messages that you're hearing, is that people are suffering. So my, my reflections on the WhatsApp messages um, was that the, the fluidity of people's lives was interrupted, in particularly in relation to their work lives and their interpersonal interactions. And so really get a sense of how, um, how disruptive and, and difficult that has been so that the workspace and the work environment is you know, is generally very interactive and requires us to build relationships, whether it's with customers or clients or colleagues or um, employees, etc. And so, so that disruption of the world of work, um, I think, really took people um, somewhat by surprise, uh, as well as the fact that you could still continue fairly easily working um, remotely. I think what what the voice notes don't necessarily capture is really the issues that uh, Lorenzo is talking about is, you know, those people who don't have access to Wi-Fi and data and, you know, easy um, uh, equipment um, do not have their voices heard in the same way and do not have the resources to accommodate um, such a big change. Um, in the working environment. So the economic impact, I, you know, is very clear from all of the data from SASA, from the, the NIDS data, et cetera, that the, that the unemployment um, factors that have uh, exas been exacerbated due to the pandemic really impact um, the lower levels of workers and those that don't have that kind of flexibility and fluidity that it allows and um, that the kind of remote working allows that the you know that that having access to all of those additional resources allows so that's my uh reflection on what the on what the the whatsapp messages said but i think what lorenzo has talked about and and how the pandemic has highlighted really what we've already known for a very long time exists, whether it's food insecurity or, you know, lack of quality of basic education, you know, the high dropout rates that, that we've seen, which are now even higher. So kids aren't finishing school because they haven't access to all of this remote learning and teaching. So the differential, the inequality, um, I think, is what really uh, is so stark. Um, during this time of the pandemic. 
moving on to the next question, which is, in moments of crisis, we're able to revise entrenched rules and norms as the status quo is no longer an option. In your particular area of work, Solange, what would you say has been open to revision in a way that it wasn't before in mapping the way forward perhaps for the Bertha Center and advocacy for social justice? Thanks for that question. Yes, I think, as I said before, it's really highlighted what are the key social justice issues. And, and there are issues that I have worked on for decades, actually, like uh, the promotion of the basic income grant. Um, so back in the day, I was the chairperson of the basic income grant coalition. And, um, and so this was in the early 2000s, really promoting a basic income grant for all those people who do not necessarily benefit from unemployment insurance, but who are adults and have access to no other income if they're unemployed. Um, and I think, you know, it's so interesting that the time, you know, has arrived uh, for a basic income grant to really be properly considered on the table um, and that we, you know, as civil society organizations, as academics doing research on the high rates of unemployment and the lack of um, income to support families, that um, in our, you know, discussions with government and thinking about policy solutions going forward, that these are real policy options now. Um, and the grants that the government has put in place and that it has extended in order to tide people over during this time, during this pandemic of, um, of great job loss and food insecurity, um, has, has been shown to, to make a difference. And so it should be considered going forward. Um, same with what, what astounded me was how incredibly um, uh, collaborative, the private and the public and the civil society sectors were around food distribution. So, you know, when when lockdown and COVID was kind of at its peak, um, there was just this huge upsurge in a response to food insecurity. And, and so I think that going forward, that's really um, also another cause that we can advocate for that food distribution um, be more efficient and effective. Obviously, the schools have not had a similar, I mean, there had to be a court case in order to get the National School Nutrition Program back, um, uh, you know, into the schools because the schools were closed. But the NSNP has always covered many learners. So actually, that's something that I think can, you know, quite effectively continue. Um, so in our work as the Bertha Center, there are definitely areas that we want to highlight and advocate um, for policy change in the future. And um, the other area that I mentioned briefly is around um, the high level of school dropouts. So our unemployment rates amongst young people has really gone up, also seen in the figures recently re released. And, um, and so that is made worse by young people dropping out of the school system earlier and so you can well imagine that learners who haven't been to school very often or who haven't had the you know online support or the teacher support or you know even you know the kind of minimum of what they used to have and now trying to get through exams whether you're in matric whether you're in grade 11 grade 10 um and so, so dropping out of school becomes an option. And whether you go back or not um, next year or the following year is still 
you know, an open question. So I think there needs to be a whole lot more support around um, for learners who have dropped out to either reintegrate back into the schooly system or find other ways to then, you know, get into kind of some job trajectory. Um, so those are some of the key issues that, um, that we have picked up on that we are advocating for. Thank you, Solange. Um, knowing that you and Lorenzo have quite a few intersections between the work that you do um, in terms of the social justice space. Lorenzo, I'd like to hear from you as well um, how the pandemic has affected your, your organizational strategies um, in terms of how, how is the situation in your organization before COVID in terms of the urgency and the appetite to push boundaries in the area of social justice and now, is there a difference? Has there been a shift? Very early in 2020, we, we, we adopted, and it's always been sort of my, sort of in my toolkit, that I think that social justice organizations such as ourselves or those who advance justice or those who work broadly in the justice space, and that is advocacy, social justice, food security, uh, you know, uh, right to education, uh, advancing uh, the SDGs, those organizations essentially must have, by nature, by, 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 by intricate DNA, they must have a risk-facing profile. Organizations such as ours do not have the luxury of being risk-averse. And, and I think part of the challenge is that you sit with so many of the sort of NGO, CBO, FBO types who are completely risk-averse. They, they only do what, what they feel they have the money to do, what their boards would allow them to do. And sometimes they sit with boards that are completely conservative because they are money classes. They, they, they watch the, 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 where, 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 the, where the funds are spent, but they don't have an understanding of a contextual response of a justice orientation. And so you have this disconnect between what boards would say and what staff who are social justice activists would do. And, and, and they hold the organization back because they are risk averse. I've always insisted that, that we have, both at board level and at staff level, a risk-facing profile, a risk-facing orientation, which means that we, 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 we understand that there's going to be inevitable risks that we are going to face. Uh, th that may be a conflict with the law, that may be a conflict with, people of, uh, with conflicts with people of power, that may be internal conflicts between which directions to follow, which strategic uh, priorities we're going to be embracing. Um, and, and as I said, as well as external threats to our viability as an enterprise. But, but, but so I think that the sort of core thing for me is that, that we have to have a common understanding that we are as social justice entities and we have an obligation to be risk-facing. Now, when I say that we have an obligation to be risk-facing, I also imply with that that, that we, we sit down and we predict everything that could go wrong. That we, we you know, when... when, when the sort of the, the, the pandemic began and people began to talk about COVID-19. We were, I think, one of the first entities uh, as early as about beginning of February to go into lockdown. We, we said to our staff, you can begin working remotely. And I think it was around the 8th or 9th of February that we went into lockdown at Community Chest. And I said, look, we're not going to sit here and wait for somebody to tell us that somebody is sick in our organization. We're not going to sit here and wait for somebody to approve that it's okay now for us to work remotely. I said to, to the team and collectively, obviously we, 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 we discussed this. I said, my view is that we should go into lockdown, work from wherever we can. And we did not say work from home. We said work from wherever you want to um, and then connect with the ecosystem. 
And it immediately gave staff the comfort that we were not sitting on edge all the time trying to predict at what point will we go into the sort of hideaway. Um, and immediately when, when lockdown happened on the 26th of March, we were already fairly geared up for what we had to deal with. And, and so, so, one, so it's the second thing that I want to just deposit here is this notion, besides being risk-facing, is this notion that we have to predict every possible crisis. Now, that in any business school, they're going to tell you that's darn hard to do. But I, I firmly believe that, that as NGOs, we have to go through that conversation with each other. What could go wrong? What, what uh, reputationally could go wrong? What financially could go wrong? What are the challenges we're going to face? Who's going to come against us? Who's going to disagree with us? And then a host of other external calamities that could, that could you know, come our way. And we've done, I mean, over the years, if you look at each year, as we update our strategic plan, the issues around emerging threats, and those emerging threats are both predictable threats and unpredictable threats. In our strategic plan, we, we highlight that. We say, what's predictable? So we could have a cash crisis, uh, you know, our donors abandon us. But an unpredictable threat is something like COVID-19, is that we have no idea when and how that's going to happen. With cash flow, you can easily begin to project, you know, this, this may be on the cards three years from now, two years from now. But with, with stuff like COVID-19 or, you know, an earthquake or something else that's, that, that causes calamity, it's an unpredictable threat. And, and we have to be prepared for unpredictable threats. So what do you do with unpredictable threats? And so there's this continuous orientation. And I must say it's not easy. It, it's certainly, I, I like what Dr. Rosa said, it's, it certainly is a challenge to begin to navigate those kinds of spaces uh, in your organization because it, it, it makes it quite challenging because, A, you have to both be celebratory and and, and, and keep going with what you're doing and announce the wins and the gains and the successes you've achieved. At the same time, you have to sit down and keep looking at the notions of what threats are we facing today and begin to keep on making these shifts and changes within your organizational ecosystem, within the structures, within designs, within your plans, um, within your models of intervention to, to look at what threats are we responding to in this particular instance. Thank you, um, Lorenzo. That was really um, something. Um, in the sense that I'd just like to latch onto that line of thinking. In terms of the meltdown of the global economy due to the pandemic, and with many companies and donor partners actually having been negatively impacted in the financial sense, um, how has this affected the philanthropy space? Is it too soon to tell? Um, in terms of risk consciousness and maybe a pivot in how, um, let's say, donation, assistance, partnerships are formed? Is there a, a rethinking or a revising? Um, so so on the, in the philanthropy space, I've sort of made two conclusions based on engagements with our donor partners and with um, the sort of broader philanthropy community that we've engaged with. We've had, you know, a few a few webinars on this issue. The one is that donors have adopted two approaches, basically. One is the delay, and the other is the defer method uh, or approach to philanthropy. This one is the one. The delay one is that they're uncertain, uh, you know, what they're going to be doing. Um, they they want to wait until 
the sort of crisis has settled. They want to wait until they are back in office. They want to wait until they've got, they have enough people to make proper assessments of what is happening. They delay as they are waiting on further information to come in, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, the, so, so the delay response has been often the most popular response that I've encountered. People say to me, no, no, we're still making the decisions. It's there. But, you know, we'll, we'll postpone it till November when we feel that, that we have a better handle on, on what is happening. So we're not saying no, but, you know, you're going to have to wait a few months. The second response that we've picked up is the defer approach. So delay and defer has been the two options. The defer is where they go and they say to you, well, uh, we're sorry, we can't fund you this year because we've deferred the money to COVID-19, uh, you know, special cases like the Solidarity Fund or to the Department of Health or to, you know, a, a, a local COVID-19 specific cause. So, so delay and defer has been the two approaches I've encountered uh, in the philanthropy space. But here's the other thing that I also picked up, and this has been sort of the, the ongoing thread that we've that we've seen, is the, is the, the sort of, I think, the unpreparedness of the philanthropy space to actually deal intelligently with this. There's, a, there's an absence of, 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 of intelligence that, that does not prepare uh, the donor market, the philanthropy space, uh, you know, uh, for this. I mean, there's almost a sense of fickleness that, that I come across, which, which is quite scary for me. Um, you know, I still encounter the people who say to us that, um, you know, they – They've decided not to fund this year, or they decided to fund this year, and they've changed their focus, and they've changed that, and they've changed this. And, and what what is required now, if 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 for, for those of us, because we do philanthropy as well, and we and we grant, you know, we spend thirty seven million rand a year in making grants to NGO partners, is that now is the time for donors to pitch up and say, "I'm in this game, I'm here, I'm sticking with you guys. We're going to see you through this crisis." The the fact that you have to almost renegotiate terms with donors is, is completely, it's, it's laughable. Now is the time for philanthropy to pitch up and say, we are standing by our causes. We are standing by our partners. We're going to see this crisis through with you. We'll make sure we come out on the other side together. And, and I, f- I think that donors uh, grant themselves the fickleness to just up and go because they now find something far more interesting to fund. And, and the back room of all of that, the back end of all of that is that essential social services in communities that are desperate are collapsing because donors have found a far more important thing to go and do. And, and I find that as we go, and Solange referred to it, the, the food security issues, the educational issues, the school dropouts, the, 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 the babies that are dying in townships, that's, those are real stories. That's what I've seen with my own eyes. The fact that they are now crises upon crises within communities because the traditional funding that has gone there uh, is now gone. Uh, donors say, say to us, oh, we've, got, we've given to the Solid Solidarity Fund uh, when they've normally funded you know, several uh, township communities, uh, feeding schemes, uh, uh, you know, school enrichment programs, after-school stuff in communities. They're now no longer there. And I just go like, this is crazy. This is really, really crazy. Because if there was a residual intelligence there, if there was a local intelligence, it should have informed them to say, hold on, the impact of the virus, the impact of the pandemic is going to collapse several systems. Now we have to pitch up with greater resources to fortify the infrastructure. At least now it's probably going to have to, we are probably going to have to increase our resource intervention by 50%, 60%, 70% in terms of what we traditionally give so as to fortify the local infrastructure. 
instead of stepping away from it. I wanted to actually first touch on the points that Lorenzo made around risk um, averse and risk um, appetite and give a shout out actually to the Bertha Foundation who are our core funder because they um, they really push us to be more advocate, greater advocates of social justice. In fact, we get into trouble for not being enough of a social activist and social advocate. So I think it's a very unusual situation. And I, I mean, I can hear Lorenzo laughing. And, um, but it is, it is an unusual situation. So I, I don't by any means, um, uh, mean that this is, you know, something that generally organizations experience. But we are very fortunate, um, especially in times when there are crises um, that we are called upon to really uh, push the debate, push the public discourse as much as we can and, and bring in innovative um, approaches to, to policy responses. And, and that um, we really are pushed to take responsibility for doing that as an organization and not just sitting back on our research and on our projects and, you know, thinking that we're doing great work. So there definitely is a difference um, depending on the donor as to what kind of um, risk appetites exist. But I agree that, you know, that in general, um, perhaps it is more of a conservative um, leaning. And, and I think in times of crisis, um, what I wanted to also latch on to that Lorenzo said is that uh, I, I did work on the green paper for the social economy for the National Department of Economic Development. And the social economy as a concept, um, you know, globally and also pushed a lot by the International Labour Organization, um, is, is that part of the economy that picks up all of the social uh, dynamics that picks up the social um, issues and and then helps to basically support uh, families, you know the poor, um, unemployed people, etc. so so it 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 really is a a big part of the economy that steps in um to support vulnerable populations. And so when there is a crisis like a pandemic, that problem becomes worse. And so the social economy should grow in order to uh, support um, and rebalance what the general economy then requires as, you know, able-bodied working population with opportunities, people, kids going to school, etc. And so, in fact, you should see the opposite of what is happening. Um, you should see the social economy being propped up those people who are providing social services, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, um, whether it's public sector or private sector, that, that 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 part of the economy, the social economy as it's called, is there to prop up society and to support it at times of crisis and, um, and great change. And so, um, you know, what we see in South Africa at the moment and what Lorenzo was talking about, about, you know, people diverting resources, um, the basics of society still require being addressed. And in fact, they're even worse. Like we've said, they've just been highlighted. And so, so philanthropists and government need to be pooling their resources together in order to address these issues and not just leaving communities to fend for themselves. Um, I mean, there's been some amazing examples through the community action networks that we've talked about on this podcast before, where communities have come together and cross-subsidized and collaborated and really tried to address these um, 
these issues that have arisen. Um, but largely that social economy can't just be, uh, you know, volunteer based. It's got to have the resources to be able to support what is needed more broadly. In your experience as a former public servant, you worked in that space for a very long time and as a citizen of South Africa. But how, how do you think um, the public sector has fared during the pandemic in terms of resilience? How resilient has it been to a shock like COVID? Sure. Look, I think there's a lot of room for critique. And I also think there's a lot of room um, for support and acknowledgement. And I think that um, the aspects of the public sector that um, have, you know, stepped in and stepped up. So as a former public servant, I don't believe in bashing the public sector all the time um, because actually there's a lot of people who do a lot of good work and, and do actually put in a whole lot of effort. Um, and so, so I think there are definitely aspects um, that, that where they've risen to the occasion in terms of some aspects of food security, as I said before, not the national school nutrition program, um, but wider distribution. Um, I think that, um, that in terms of the decisions around um, lockdown and when they came into effect and the impact on the health sector in particular, which they were trying to prevent, you know, an overflow in the health sector, I think that those were the right decisions. And I think that the health sector especially um, has really stepped up and done um, an amazing um, uh, piece of work around responding to this COVID um, pandemic. Um, and then I think, I think the education sector has not responded as well as they could have. Um, I think that there's, that the education sector already has been in so much trouble. And, um, and so, especially for uh, schools in underprivileged areas and, um, and the, 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 the highly unequal education system, I think that, um, that there, there, hasn't, there haven't been enough resources put to, to that to ensure that um, learners in underprivileged um, schools are able to, to learn and continue as um, schools in more advantaged areas did. So, um, but I think our education sector, you know, in general is, is, is far behind. Um, and then in terms of you know, trying to address the economy. I think that there was a lot of effort around, um, you know, putting in place measures like the grants, like unemployment insurance, like um, entrepreneurial funds, like the solidarity fund. I think there were lots of efforts, but I suppose that there were a bit of a drop in the ocean compared to what the need has been and compared to the impact that the lockdown had. Um, on the economy, um, putting pressure on an already an already difficult situation and in a very an already depressed economy um, with high rates of of unemployment. Yes, Lorenzo, the visionary. What are the possible learnings, like Dr. Solange Rosa explained so nicely, that are coming out of this pandemic to help us reimagine and build the public sector we want to see? You know, I mean, I I think that for a developing society such as ourselves, our systems responded incredibly well. I, I believe that there was from the get-go a significant momentum in the public sector to respond to this crisis. I, I think it showed a, a 
showed resilience, it showed predictability, it showed, uh, you know, uh, sort of looking into the emerging, uh, uh, you know, problems that may come out of the, 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 uh, the pandemic. The president was upfront leading that crisis. Um, and, and I think we all felt 26th of March, all the way through to the sort of uh, middle of June, we all felt like, whoa, we, we, we're managing this thing. And there was a sense of communication and a sense of that we had a great health minister in Dr. McKeezy and that, you know, uh, the, the intelligence that surrounded him uh, informed it well. Where, where I think we, we began to feel a sense of lopsidedness with this was with the National Coronavirus Command Council, where I think um, outside role players, big business and others began to crowd around the public service. And I think there, there was an imbalance of power, um, an, an imbalance in terms of where the pressure was. Um, and, and I think that often you saw a president who then emerged sort of towards the middle of July and August, the president that, that almost looked a little bit unsure as to what to do next. And I think it reflected the tension between the, the strength of the public service and the interest of business in, in that particular dialogue. And I think that was very visible on the president's demeanor, his sense of, do we do this or don't we do this? And, and, and I think that in itself has, has almost undermined, I think, the, the sort of strength of, of, of our public servants, our public officials, who, who you know, I think managed this very well. Now, uh, let's also face the, the realities that there's a, there's a whole other story about corruption and, you know, everything that went wrong. There's this massive story there in, in and of itself. But I think, at, at, so I'm reflecting on the leadership of this crisis. And in, in the leadership models of this crisis, we started out the right. I do think, however, the president um, did not contain the power of big business to advise him on what is next. And that often conflicted with what his health officials, um, his, his health department and associated ministries in that collective decided. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's where I found it problematic. That takes us to the end of our podcast. I just want to say a special thank you to Lorenzo and Solange for joining us in this talk today. It's been really insightful. Hi there, this is Fergus Turner with the Systems Justice Team for the Bertha Centre. Today we'll be hearing from Sean Kaya Andrew of Forum for the Future, where he is a principal systems change coach. So climate change, poverty, malnutrition, pandemics, civil unrest. The world today is facing complex challenges because our fundamental systems are possibly no longer fit for purpose. Forum for the Future is a leading international sustainability nonprofit that's been working in partnership with business, governments, and civil society to accelerate the shift toward a sustainable future for over 24 years. They specialize in addressing critical global challenges by catalyzing change in key systems from food to apparel, energy to shipping. And they do this by convening transformational collaborations to drive change, by partnering with organizations to help them lead by example, and by building a global community of pioneers and change makers. Thank you for being here with us um, here today, Sean. So to get us kicked off, what are the specific opportunities, and perhaps if you could link it to some examples, um, of opportunities for uh, taking that attitude, that, that system sensibility, if you will, 
um, applying it to the public sector, to, to public sector institutions and government agencies, so as to increase uh, the possibility of innovation and rapid, um, you know, people-centered change um, at these um, at these um, high-level institutional um, spaces. Um, so, if you could point us to a couple of examples, um, either examples that you worked on in the past um, or currently. Um, public sector institutions that are rapidly changing and taking on these models? So I think there's absolutely something around broadening the perspective of governments, governance and government. So moving the state from um, a deliverer of services to an enabler. So how can the state be an enabler? So that means how are we having more um, bottom-up approaches, which once again means a diversity of different expressions that move towards a common purpose versus a homogenous way of looking at how we're dealing with these issues. So government can't always do all that work. So how is government really enabling a multitude of um, sectors and actors to come up with their own unique context, people, and place-based approaches? So that would be one one level. Uh, Another thing that I I think has come up in in, quite a few spaces that's almost a tension that's emerged during um, coronavirus you know, we've made a lot of progress over recent years in terms of really understanding the interconnections between the environmental um, and the interdependencies between the environmental, economic, and um, social environments. What's emerging is also like a dangerous dichotomy. Uh, kind of, do we prioritize human health or climate change, or do we prioritize um, human health or jobs? And how do we not fall into that misleading binary that? both and. Um, there will be trade-offs, but how are we making sure that we're being explicit when there are and when there aren't, and we're not letting that become the dominant narrative that's guiding policy? If you could provide any, for anybody listening in the public sector, civil service, um, or governmental agencies of any kind who are wanting to nudge their organizations to be more aware, to uh, uh, work with more of a long-term arc using some of these system sensibilities. How to nudge them? Where to start? What to do? Sure. So I'm going to maybe just start with um, some of the systemic practices that we found in our work are useful. And these, again, these are practices, but they're also mindsets. And when I say mindsets, these are kind of the guiding assumptions in terms of how we see the world. And at Form, we've developed a number of um, practices that we, we work with organizations to kind of cultivate. Um, you know, basic things around kind of enabling people in the system to see itself and hold the whole picture. So there's often like a, a you know, again, a, um, a closed system approach where we're looking out or inside out of the system versus seeing that we're all in a, a nested open system. So that's one thing or understanding that however we're making change in the system is going to have a feedback loop into ourselves. Another thing is absolutely about just engaging different perspectives. Um, that's, you know, I, I think that there's nothing new there, but it's very easy to kind of stay in our siloed thinking and in our, um, especially when we're kind of meeting the same people, we're getting into the same kind of reporting mechanisms. A big part of that has to do with collaboration and what we actually mean by collaboration. We, um, you know, and I'll say this having worked in the public sector, there's often a... Um, we call it collaboration, but really what we're doing is we're just coordinating or we're just reporting or we're just cooperating. So what does deep collaboration look like? What does it look like to actually have a blank canvas and work together on something and kind of have an emergent approach in which we're building it up? Thank you so much for participating and contributing, Sean. 
The systemic shock of COVID-19 has revealed many challenges, opportunities for systems innovation, and the need to create truly integrated and responsive sectors across the board, including the public sector. In order to effectively serve the people of South Africa, strategy, the willingness to take risks, flexibility, and collaboration are essential in moving forward. Thank you for tuning in to Just for a Change, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, the podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Also, remember to have a look at the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship.